0: Section 6 of The Autobiography of Charles Darwin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich. Alexandria, Virginia, June 2009. The Autobiography of Charles Darwin. Edited by his son, Francis Darwin section six written may first eighteen eighty one the effects of cross and self-fertilization was published in the autumn of eighteen seventy six and the results there arrived at explain as i believe the endless and wonderful contrivances for the transportal of pollen from one plant to another of the same species i now believe however chiefly from the observations of Hermann Müller, that I ought to have insisted more strongly than I did on the many adaptations for self-fertilization, though I was well aware of many such adaptations. A much enlarged edition of my Fertilization of Orchids was published in 1877. In the same year the different forms of flowers, etc., appeared, and in 1880, a second edition. This book consists chiefly of the several papers on heterostyled flowers originally published by the Linnaean Society, corrected, with much new matter added, together with observations on some other cases in which the same plant bears two kinds of flowers. As before remarked, no little discovery of mine ever gave me so much pleasure as the making out of the meaning of heterostyled flowers. The results of crossing such flowers in an illegitimate manner, I believe to be very important, as bearing on the sterility of hybrids, although these results have been noticed by only a few persons. In 1879... I had a translation of Dr. Ernst Krause's Life of Erasmus Darwin published, and I added a sketch of his character and habits from material in my possession. Many persons have been much interested by this little life, and I am surprised that only 800 or 900 copies were sold. In 1880 I published, with my son Frank's assistance, Our Power of Movement in Plants. This was a tough piece of work. The book bears somewhat the same relation to my little book on climbing plants, which cross-fertilization did to the fertilization of orchids, for in accordance with the principle of evolution, it was impossible to account for climbing plants having been developed in so many widely different groups, unless all kinds of plants possessed some slight power of movement of an analogous kind this i proved to be the case and i was further led to a rather wide generalization visibly that the great and important classes of movements excited by light the attraction of gravity etc are all modified forms of the fundamental movement of circummutation. it has always pleased me to exalt plants in the scale of organized beings and i therefore felt an especial pleasure in showing how many and what admirably well adapted movements the tip of a root possesses i have now may 1st 1881 sent to the printers the manuscript of a little book on the formation of vegetable mould through the action of worms this is a subject of but small importance and i know not whether it will interest my readers Between November 1881 and February 1884, 8,500 copies have been sold. But it has interested me. It is a completion of a short paper read before the Geological Society more than 40 years ago and has revived old geological thoughts. I have now mentioned all the books which I have published, and these have been the milestones in my life so that little remains to be said. I am not conscious of any change in my mind during the last thirty years, excepting in one point presently to be mentioned, nor, indeed, could any change have been expected, unless one of general deterioration. But my father lived to his eighty-third year with his mind as lively as it ever was, and all his faculties undimmed, and I hope that I may die before my mind fails to a sensible extent. I think that I have become a little more skillful in guessing right explanations and in devising experimental tests, but this may probably be the result of mere practice and of a larger store of knowledge. I have as much difficulty as ever in expressing myself clearly and concisely, and this difficulty has caused me a very great loss of time but it has had the compensating advantage of forcing me to think long and intently about every sentence, and thus I have been led to see errors in reasoning and in my own observations or those of others. There seems to be a sort of fatality in my mind, leading me to put at first my statement or proposition in a wrong or awkward form. Formerly I used to think about my sentences before writing them down, but for several years I have found that it saves time to scribble in a vile hand whole pages as quickly as I possibly can, contracting half the words, and then correct deliberately. Sentences thus scribbled down are often better ones than I could have written deliberately. Having said thus much about my manner of writing, I will add that with my large books I spend a good deal of time over the general arrangement of the matter. I first make the rudest outline in two or three pages, and then a larger one in several pages, a few words or one word standing for a whole discussion or series of facts. Each one of these headings is again enlarged and often transferred before I begin to write it in extenso. As in several of my books, facts observed by others, have been very extensively used, and as I have always had several quite distinct subjects in hand at the same time, I may mention that I keep from thirty to forty large portfolios in cabinets with labeled shelves, into which I can at once put a detached reference or memorandum. I have bought many books, and at their ends I make an index of all the facts that concern my work, or... If the book is not my own, write out a separate abstract, and of such abstracts I have a large drawer full. Before beginning on any subject, I look to all the short indexes and make a general and classified index, and by taking the one or more proper portfolios, I have all the information collected during my life ready to use. I have said that in one respect my mind has changed during the last twenty or thirty years. Up to the age of thirty, or beyond it, poetry of many kinds, such as the works of Milton, Gray, Byron, Wordsworth, Coleridge, and Shelley, gave me great pleasure. And even as a schoolboy I took intense delight in Shakespeare, especially in the historical plays, I have also said that formerly pictures gave me considerable, and music very great delight. But now for many years I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I have tried lately to read Shakespeare, and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I have also almost lost my taste for pictures or music. Music generally sets me thinking too energetically, on what i have been at work on instead of giving me pleasure i retain some taste for fine scenery but it does not cause me the exquisite delight which it formerly did on the other hand novels which are works of the imagination though not of a very high order have been for years a wonderful relief and pleasure to me and i often bless all novelists a surprising number have been read aloud to me and I like all if moderately good, and if they do not end unhappily, against which a law ought to be passed. A novel, according to my taste, does not come into the first class unless it contains some person whom one can thoroughly love, and if a pretty woman, all the better. This curious and lamentable loss of the higher aesthetic tastes is all the odder, as books on history biographies and travels independently of any scientific facts which they may contain and essays on all sorts of subjects interest me as much as ever they did my mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts but why this should have caused the atrophy of that part of the brain alone on which the higher tastes depend i cannot conceive a man with a mind more highly organized or better constituted than mine would not i suppose have thus suffered and if i had to live my life again i would have made a rule to read some poetry and listen to some music at least once every week for perhaps the parts of my brain now atrophied would thus have been kept active through use The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness, and may possibly be injurious to the intellect, and more probably to the moral character, by enfeebling the emotional part of our nature. My books have sold largely in England, and have been translated into many languages, and passed through several editions in foreign countries. I have heard it said that the success of a work abroad is the best test of its enduring value. I doubt whether this is at all trustworthy, but judged by this standard, my name ought to last for a few years. Therefore it may be worth while to try to analyze the mental qualities and the conditions on which my success has depended, though I am aware that no man can do this correctly. I have no great quickness of apprehension or wit which is so remarkable in some clever men. For instance, Huxley, I am therefore a poor critic. A paper or a book, when first read, generally excites my admiration, and it is only after considerable reflection that I perceive the weak points. My power to follow a long and purely abstract train of thought is very limited, and therefore I could never have succeeded with metaphysics or mathematics, my memory is extensive yet hazy it suffices to make me cautious by vaguely telling me that i have observed or read something opposed to the conclusion which i am drawing or on the other hand in favor of it and after a time i can generally recollect where to search for my authority so poor in one sense is my memory that i have never been able to remember for more than a few days a single date or a line of poetry. Some of my critics have said, Oh, he is a good observer, but he has no power of reasoning. I do not think that this can be true, for The Origin of Species is one long argument from the beginning to the end, and it has convinced not a few able men. No one could have written it without having some power of reasoning. I have a fair share of invention and of common sense or judgment, such as every fairly successful lawyer or doctor must have, but not, I believe, in any higher degree. On the favorable side of the balance, I think that I am superior to the common run of men in noticing things which easily escape attention, and in observing them carefully. My industry has been nearly as great as it could have been in the observation and collection of facts. What is far more important, my love of natural science has been steady and ardent. This pure love has, however, been much aided by the ambition to be esteemed by my fellow naturalists. From my early youth I have had the strongest desire to understand or explain whatever I observed, that is, to group all facts under some general laws. These causes, combined, have given me the patience to reflect or ponder for any number of years over an unexplained problem. As far as I can judge, I am not apt to follow blindly the lead of other men. I have steadily endeavored to keep my mind free so as to give up any hypothesis, however much beloved, and I cannot resist forming one on every subject as soon as facts are shown to be opposed to it indeed i have had no choice but to act in this manner for with the exception of the coral reefs i cannot remember a single first formed hypothesis which had not after time to be given up or greatly modified this has naturally led me to distrust greatly deductive reasoning in the mixed sciences on the other hand I am not very skeptical, a frame of mind which I believe to be injurious to the progress of science. A good deal of skepticism in a scientific man is advisable to avoid much loss of time, but I have met with not a few men who, I feel sure, have often thus been deterred from experiment or observations, which would have proved directly or indirectly serviceable, In illustration, I will give the oddest case which I have known. A gentleman, who, as I afterwards heard, is a good local botanist, wrote to me from the eastern countries that the seed or beans of the common field bean had this year everywhere grown on the wrong side of the pod. I wrote back, asking for further information, as I did not understand what was meant, but I did not receive any answer for a very long time. I then saw in two newspapers, one published in Kent and the other in Yorkshire, paragraphs stating that it was a most remarkable fact that the beans this year had all grown on the wrong side. So I thought there might be some foundation for so general a statement. Accordingly, I went to my gardener, an old Kentish man, and asked him whether he had heard anything about it, and he answered, Oh, no, sir, it must be a mistake, for the beans grow on the wrong side only on leap year, and this is not a leap year. I then asked him how they grew in common years and how on leap years, but soon found that he knew absolutely nothing of how they grew at any time, but he stuck to his belief. After a time I heard from my first informant, who, with many apologies, said that he should not have written to me had he not heard the statement from several intelligent farmers, but that he had since spoken again to every one of them, and not one knew in the least what he had himself meant, so that here a belief, if indeed a statement with no definite idea attached to it can be called a belief, had spread over almost the whole of England, without any vestige of evidence. I have known in the course of my life only three intentionally falsified statements, and one of these may have been a hoax, and there have been several scientific hoaxes, which, however, took in an American agricultural journal. It related to the formation in Holland of a new breed of oxen by the crossing of distinct species of bows, some of which I happen to know are sterile together, and the author had the impudence to state that he had corresponded with me and that I had been deeply impressed with the importance of his result. The article was sent to me by the editor of an English agricultural journal, asking for my opinion before republishing it. A second case was an account of several varieties, raised by the author from several species of primula, which had spontaneously yielded a full complement of seed, although the parent plants had been carefully protected from the access of insects. This account was published before I had discovered the meaning of heterostylism, and the whole statement must have been fraudulent, or there was neglect in excluding insects, so gross as to be scarcely credible the third case was more curious mr huth published in his book on consanguineous marriage some long extracts from a belgian author who stated that he had interbred rabbits in the closest manner for very many generations without the least injurious effects the account was published in a most respectable journal that of the royal society of belgium but i could not avoid feeling doubts i hardly know why except that there were no accidents of any kind and my experience in breeding animals made me think this very improbable so with much hesitation i wrote to professor von beneden asking him whether the author was a trustworthy man i soon heard an answer that the society had been greatly shocked by discovering that the whole account was a fraud. The falseness of the published statements on which Mr. Huth relied has been pointed out by himself in a slip inserted in all the copies of his book, which then remained unsold. The writer had been publicly challenged in the journal to say where he had resided, and kept his large stock of rabbits while carrying on his experiments which must have consumed several years and no answer could be extracted from him my habits are methodical and this has been of not a little use for my particular line of work my habits are methodical and this has been of not a little use for my particular line of work lastly I have had ample leisure from not having to earn my own bread. Even ill health, though it has annihilated several years of my life, has saved me from the distractions of society and amusement. Therefore, my success as a man of science, whether this may have amounted to, has been determined, as far as I can judge, by complex and diversified mental qualities and conditions. Of these, the most important have been the love of science unbounded patience in long reflecting over any subject industry in observing and collecting facts and a fair share of invention as well as of common sense with such moderate abilities as i possess it is truly surprising that i should have influenced to a considerable extent the belief of scientific men on some important points end of section six end of the autobiography of charles darwin